Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with me today is our guest, Professor Dan Sperber. Dan is a French social and cognitive scientist who specializes in the fields of anthropology, linguistics, philosophy, and psychology. Uh, currently, he is a professor of philosophy and cognitive science at the Central European University in Budapest. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, today what I want to talk about is there is a standard view about the human capacity for reason, which is that it evolved in order to help humans uh, figure out the truth and make better decisions, which, you know, in theory should uh, produce better uh, life outcomes and is therefore adaptive. Uh, however, there are a bunch of puzzles um, surrounding this theory, which cognitive scientists have uh, increasingly noticed and documented over the decades in that uh, our capacity for reasoning uh, doesn't always go as it should. And so Dan Sperber, along with his colleague Hugo Mercier, have developed an alternate theory about the human capacity to reason called the argumentative theory of reasoning. So that's what we're going to delve into today. Dan, would you like to kick things off by... Um, either just stating your theory and then elaborating a bit, or maybe giving some of the context for uh, what motivated the development of this theory. Well, yes, let me first point out that the idea that uh, human reasoning uh, is for uh, reaching better uh, beliefs and better decisions uh, predates any idea about evolution. So, so the, the notion of humans as a rational animal uh, it's back at least to uh, ancient Greek philosophy, and it's a cliche that you find again and again that what makes humans superior uh, to our animals is precisely <coughs> this capacity they have uh, to reason on their own and to reach uh, better decisions and form <coughs> better justified beliefs. Right. And people have had very grand ideas about that. Maybe the most extreme one is uh, René Descartes, who uh, thought that uh, he should forget everything he'd learned from others and rebuild his knowledge. Uh, of a world just by the use of reason, right. accepting as true only things that it could justify in reason. Uh, this is such a grand uh, uh, project, uh, grand to the point of, of absurdity, especially <laughs> if one thinks of uh, indeed the limits of reasons, of reason and reasoning that, as you pointed out, have been uh, very well documented by now in, in psychological and cognitive science research. Um, so, so when, it, when evolutionary ideas uh, started developing uh, with Darwin, basically they just took up this whole idea that uh, you know reason is uh, for individual, the function of reason, the evolved function of reason, uh, uh, is to uh, go beyond the limits of uh, perception and uh, uh, automatic inference that are found in other animals and, and, and to go much further in our cognitive achievements. Uh, you can find quotations in Darwin stating that, and in much of uh, recent literature in, in psychology or in philosophy, again, this is just taken for granted that right. uh, 
the function of, of, of reasoning is basically for individual cognition, for the individual pursuing her own goals. Uh, um, and what we argued, uh, Hugo Mercier and myself, uh, is that this is a, a very implausible story. Uh, um, it's uh, a, and a story that doesn't square well with the evidence we have. I mean, before even looking at the um, all, all the experiments that have shown how poorly uh, humans often reason, how badly they, they perform on a great variety of apparently simple reasoning tasks, mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a kind of more basic and simple enigma. I mean, t take most of our cognitive capacities. Take vision, for instance. If you're not visually impaired, uh, uh, you uh, you take for granted, and you be, uh, that that other people who are not visually impaired either see the same thing you see. I mean, if there's a tree in front of you, you see the tree, they see the tree. If there's a dog, you see the dog, they see the dog. If there's a sunset, say, you know, you see the sunset, they see the sunset. So the the notion that that, that our uh, uh, perceptual abilities could quite not just at the margins, not when when we exert them, exercise them in in difficult uh, circumstances, where the light is not very good, or we're looking at a very distant object, but just in ordinary circumstances, would cause us to have quite divergent perception. Is very weird, and yet that this is clearly what happens with reasoning. So people reason say about political issues or moral issues, mm -hmm. and not only doesn't cause them to converge, but often. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence to that effect, it causes them to, to accentuate, to exaggerate their disagreements. So, so if reasons was a way uh, to uh, reach uh, true knowledge, it should, to begin with, cause us to converge, to come to the same conclusions. But, you know, again, if you, if you give a, a, ask people to look at something and say what it is, you expect them to come, you know, if they know the, the object that it is, to, to come with the same judgment. If you ask people to reason on the problem, you know, quite often you don't expect any such conversion. That's a big enigma. I mean, again, right. it's not compatible with the idea that reasoning aims at the truth as, a, as its function to present, uh, present us with uh, deeper and, and better knowledge. Uh, then, indeed, there's all this experimental literature uh, uh, that has shown that many simple logical tasks or reasoning tasks, uh, that once you explain them, you know, seems totally obvious, in fact, cause failure again and again. Uh, um, and that's quite puzzling to there. There are more, you know, if we enter in the nitty-gritty of psychological research, one can start discussing each experiment and say, oh, yes, well, people are not really making the mistake you think they're making. They interpret the task differently and so on. So we can defend the performance of uh, people participating in psychological experiments and say that they are being tricked by psychologists who are trying to, to cause them to, to fail by presenting kind of cognitive illusions. Uh, and I think that that defense of the ordinary participant in experiments is is reasonably, is reasonably fair, but still psychologists might answer no, no. But you know, uh, of course, we are provoking participants uh, uh, to misunderstand, not to misunderstand, to misreason, to reason in an appropriate way. But that's the same thing as using visual illusion in order to study vision. Right. It's precisely on on, on the when the we, we explore the limits of the system that we also understand its its basic functioning. Uh, but, but that works for some kind of uh, uh, problems in the study of reasoning, some of the famous experiments uh, devised by Kahneman, Tversky, and others, and so on. Uh, so just where, to give yes? an example of, of such a uh, case, yeah. uh, you can tell me if this is a good example, but I'm thinking of things like um, tests of how people use probability, um, showing yeah. that, that people reason poorly about probability, uh, defenders of human reasoning will say, well, you know, you're using percentages, which are not a natural 
way for mm. people to think. When you when you rephrase your problems in terms of frequencies, relative frequencies, people do much better. Um, so that's yes. yeah. Yes, that's, it's that. a good example, and there's been a big debate. There's been answers to that too. So it's uh, so that was uh, the German psychologist Gerd Gigerenzer, a very right. interesting reply to uh, Kahneman Tversky. If they've been rejoined this and so on. Uh, but 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 the, the um, yes, there there are. Uh, even simpler cases, uh, uh, which look like uh, reasoning mistakes. So, you know, to take a very uh, one of the simplest, well-established type of results, uh, if you ask people to reason from a conditional statement of a form, you know, if there is a square, uh, then it's blue, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then you say there is a square. Uh, what can you infer from it, from these mm -hmm. two premises? If there is a square, then, then it's blue, and there is a square. Then they infer correctly, it's blue. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's, it's, so now you tell if, if the form is a square, then it's blue. I should rephrase it like this. And then you say the form is red. Uh, 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 what can you infer from that? Then only about half the people correctly infer that if it's red, it's not a square. Right. Uh, if you tell them it's not a square, about how the people infer it's not blue, not but blue, that, right. that, 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 that's a mistake. Uh, if you tell them it's blue, they infer it's a square, which is again a mistake. So very simple logical tasks like that seems to, to trip people right. in a dramatic manner. Again, there are, that's not what strikes me as the most dramatic type of error, because there are interesting ways to discuss uh, uh, what people are actually doing or thinking they're doing, why they answer the way they do. Uh, basically, I think what the, what happens in such cases is that people do not accept the instructions of the experimenter, which is to reason in a strictly logical manner, because that's not what we do in life. I mean, in a strictly log logical in the sense of deductive manner, right. when you reason in your daily life, uh, you take into account whatever is relevant, whether uh, it has deductive consequences or not, is beside the point. So we use both deduction and non-deductive reasoning probabilities. We mix it all, all up together. And what we're not good at, at is kind of separating, isolating just the logical deductive aspects and ignoring all the rest of the information. But that needn't be a failure uh, of reasoning. Uh, it just may, be a, a, may just be a failure of performing a certain kind of logical task that you never have to do in an isolated manner in, in real life. But take another type of uh, um, failure, which is much more striking in a way and puzzling and not that easy to explain. Actually, it's a series of failures which are globally uh, described as uh, uh, having a confirmation bias. So what people do, and they do that in reasoning throughout, uh, if you uh, give them a, a problem to solve, and if they have already some hypotheses about what is the solution of a problem, uh, or if they just get a hunch just when you present the problem, then what they end up doing is piling up evidence and reasons that confirm uh, their, their belief or their hunch right. and ignore uh, or not pay attention to all the evidence or arguments that would go in the other direction. So there are lots of experiments where people give a, have an initial hunch on some problem, you know, like the famous ways and forecast election task, I'm sure many of your hearers will have encountered it before. Uh, so people get a hunch and then you ask, give them the time to reason, you know, think, think harder about it. And they spend the time you, 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 you give them not to really go over the possibilities, see if what they uh, 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 their hunch is really justified, but just, you know, developing the best possible argument uh, to justify their hunch, even when the, the hunch is mistaken and therefore the best possible argument is pretty lousy. So, so we get this confirmation bias, that, and that affects not just experimental settings, but real life. So we all have exp the experience of discussing with friends and, and being really aggravated by the way they just, you know, stick to the guns and keep uh, uh, not seeing our excellent arguments and, mm -hmm. and just piling up 
poor arguments for, for, for their point of view. Of course, they think the same thing about us, uh, and God knows who's right. But so what, what happens uh, uh, quite systematically is this tendency to use reasoning, not to discover the truth, not to examine uh, in an uh, open-minded manner all the possibilities, but basically uh, uh, to, to find arguments in favor of views which are held before even reasoning, uh, even because we've learned them in our social media environment, or again, because we just have a kind of immediate intuition that we hardly depart from uh, uh, once we have it. So it's as if reasoning played the role of, of a, a lawyer right. whose job is to defend your views, whatever, whatever they are, and your actions, whatever you did. And not to discuss if there were the right views or the right actions. Right. So rationalizing then is not a bug in the process of reasoning. Rationalizing is the purpose. It's the feature um, that's, of that's, reasoning. That's, that's, that's the direction in that's. Uh, uh, a, a direction in which the argumentative theory goes. But again, the, 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 the problem is very well known. Again, it's quite central to work on reasoning. It's, it's, it's typically it's most commonly called the confirmation bias, but we prefer, as some other psychologists do too, to call it the my side bias. Because right. one striking thing about it is that if you ask people to reason about some view that they disagree with, then they are quite good at finding counter arguments. <laughs> So, so it's not that if you know if you reason from a certain view, uh, uh, then you automatically uh, are apt to confirm it. If you adopt that view, if it's your view, and again, it doesn't have to be a deeply held view; it can be just a hunch. Then you will indeed go for this type of confirmation. If it's a view you disagree with, or you have a hunch against, uh, then suddenly you you find yourself very very bad at confirming and very good at finding counter arguments. So it's a my side bias. Right. So, so it, this raises a huge problem for any view of reasoning as aimed at improving individual cognition. Because that's exactly what you don't want to do. You want to have an open mind on issues, even be ready to revise your own views, to weigh evidence and arguments in the most objective kind of manner. Objectivity is in certainly a condition for getting to better knowledge and better decisions. And that kind of objectivity people don't have. I mean, we may all think that we have it, but if you look at the evidence, we don't. And so it's puzzling, or it should be puzzling. So what's been the uh, reaction of psychologists and philosophers to the puzzle has been to either say, oh, well, it's not as bad as it sounds, and there are cases where, in fact, it's a good reasoning strategy, which actually is true. Yeah. It can be a good heuristic to try to uh, um, defend a certain view you have if it has a certain kind of initial uh, improbability. Uh, uh, but again, you know, the, the, uh, this, my side bias is much more pervasive. It's certainly not limited to the few cases where it would be useful. Or, 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 or people... Uh, I've been happy to say, ah, you know, humans are not very good at reasoning, ha, ha, ha. You know, as if it's some kind of uh, newsworthy finding uh, that we could be content with. You know, we just gloat on, on our own mediocrity uh, and stop there. And you find a lot of that, actually, a lot of, of literature, popular books and so on about reasoning, uh, uh, just, you know, cite one uh, uh, experiment after another that shows how that people are reasoning badly and uh, uh, with lots of, uh, you know, exclamation mark and as if this was you know, a great finding. Well, no, it's, it's a question. It's, you can't stop there. Certainly not, for instance, if you take an evolutionary view about uh, our, our cognitive capacities. I mean, if, if we reason so badly, uh, then the people who don't just stop from reasoning would do better mm. and have more descendants. And well, we would be descendants of people who have stopped reasoning. What about the argument that there's some some degree of optimal reasoning or some degree of good reasoning that's optimal from an evolutionary standpoint, but that's not 100% because reasoning is costly. So, in, in, so the argument that, that uh, uh, reasoning is not perfect from a strictly normative point of view 
because it's there's a cost to it, a biological cost, and of course we settle for uh, uh, the optimal cost-benefit balance rather than from uh, aiming at the perfect reasoning from a logician point of view. No, no that's is a perfectly reasonable argument, but but it doesn't explain uh, something like my side bias, uh, the the benefits of being biased in this manner. Uh, of the cost we would incur if we were not so biased, have never been uh, demonstrated. In fact, right. they're very hard to, to to imagine what they could be. I mean, it's not particularly costly in itself to be objective, uh, uh, and it's very costly not to be. Right. And look, look, you know, for instance, in perception, we're objective. We don't see what we would like to see. We see what there is. In just, I mean, in perception, perception at, at, yes. the, at the visual level. Right. So right. when we interpret it, we may be biased. But but so so in lots of basic cognitive processes, we're not biased in that manner. Uh, animals are not biased in, in thinking that there is food where they would like it to be. Uh, you know, they, they, they're biased to, to, to think food is where it's likely to be. Uh, so, so, so that's not the explanation. So the kind of explanation that uh, the argumentative theory that Hugo Mercy and I have tried to develop uh, um, proposes goes in a radically different direction, saying, you know, reasoning is not, didn't, didn't evolve for the benefits of the individual. It's not a means to improve our individual cognitive capacities. Uh, it, it has to do with the fact that human beings depend so massively on communication, and the role it plays is crucially linked to communication. So how does that go? It goes in this way. Indeed, human beings owe so much of information they possess and use every day uh, uh, to communication from others. You cannot become a competent adult without having communicated a lot with your parents, caretakers, peers, and so on, and you cannot spend a day without drawing on information that you got from others. Mm -hmm. So we, we stand to benefit from communication to others much, much more, incomparably more than any other species. Our cognitive capacities are quite extraordinary. At the same time, they make us vulnerable to misinformation, to manipulation, to deception. And, uh, and, it, and it, makes so, it makes it also advantageous for us quite often to mislead others, to deceive them, to, to misrepresent things, to protect ourselves, to get them to influence them in the way we want, and so on. Uh, so, so an argument that uh, a number of my collaborators and myself have made is that this has created a, a selective pressure not just for one mechanism, but for a range of mechanisms of what we call epistemic vigilance, mm -hmm. mechanisms that aim at uh, uh, trusting uh, information when it, indeed it is reliable as much as possible, uh, in, in sifting the information which is presented uh, so as to, to, to uh, uh, accept the, that which is most likely to be correct and reject that which is not. Uh, uh, without such an optimization, uh, uh, a tendency to optimize the, the, the uh, receptivity to information we receive socially, uh, we would the risk of being victims of communication rather than beneficiary of it mm -hmm. would be great. And, and this epistemic vigilance takes two basic forms. There's the issue of whom to trust uh, and, and, and whom, to, whom to, be, who to believe, and the issue of what to believe. So first, we are very good at uh, uh, judging how, to what extent people are trustworthy on a given matter, you know, when they're competent, when they are benevolent. And, and, and studies starting from early childhood show that this is a very systematic feature uh, of our social interaction. We, we care very much about the trustworthiness of others, and we're not too bad at judging it. The other issue is what to believe. So some things, even from somebody who's trustworthy, are more believable than others. Uh, you know, if I tell you now that the end is, uh, the, the world is about to end in the coming five minutes, even though I'm a very trustworthy person, I hope you trust me in every respect, even though I'm such a trustworthy person, you wouldn't believe it, if I, uh, and so on. So, so, so we, some contents are more believable than others.
And one in particular way in which we judge the art contents are trustworthy is we see are they internally consistent? Don't they, do they contain any kind of internal contradiction? Mm -hmm. First, they shouldn't. And second, are they consistent with things we already have strong reasons to believe? Mm -hmm. So, so we, 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 we look for the consistency of new information uh, with what we already believe, ready sometimes to, to revise our own beliefs, but not, not very easily, and, and often not disposed to reject new information that contradicts what we believe. So there's a kind of subtle uh, a capacity here we have to um, take in new information, sometimes at the cost of revisions, but also sometimes rejecting information that is inconsistent with things we have strong reasons to believe. So if we are consistency checkers, uh, this means that we can resist a lot of uh, uh, misinformation, deception, and lying, because typically uh, false information is inconsistent with a lot of true information, and that comes out. So now I am trying to convince you of a theory, the, the, the argumentative theory of reasoning. Mm -hmm. But you, you know, as you know, you and the uh, auditors of your podcast, said, well, you may say, why should I believe it? Certainly, you shouldn't just believe it because I'm a nice Frenchman. That's not good enough. Uh, it should, maybe it should be, but it isn't. Uh, uh, so the reason, I, the way in which I might convince you is by showing you that it would be more consistent for you to believe it than to disbelieve it. To show you that given the number of things that you already believe, given further experimental evidence and so on that I can uh, uh, put forward, a number of, of empirical consideration where I am trustworthy, I'm, you know, I'm a psychologist, I'm a philosopher, so I, I can tell you about experiments and you believe me on that quite rightly. Mm -hmm. Given all this, uh, it becomes more consistent for you to accept a new theory than reject it. So the idea is that uh, uh, reasoning that is displaying the consistency uh, uh, relationship between a set of premises and a conclusion, showing that if you accept some premises, you should accept some conclusion, is a way to overcome uh, the epistemic vigilance of others uh, when we talk about matters where we don't have sufficient authority to get what we say accepted just on the basis of, of our authority. So reasoning is, a, is basically, uh, from that point of view, from the point of view of a communicator, aimed at succeeding in communicating information that would not be accepted just on trust. And from the point of view of the audience, uh, uh, it, it is, you know, we find ourselves as audience in a situation of, on the one hand, knowing that there may be good information for us uh, that people could share with us, but finding that they are not trustworthy enough on, on, on these issues to accept it, what they say just on trust. So we're missing on some good information because it's too important to accept it just on trust, and still it could be true. So if others can argue uh, for the information uh, they want to share with us, ideas they want to share with us, goals they want to share with us, show us that, you know, it's indeed, if we aim at uh, having a consistent set of be beliefs at, uh, and, 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 and rational decisions, then we should in fact, be convinced by what they say. Uh, it's their benefit and our benefit. So, so, so our, uh, uh, reasoning is, is used in two different ways. On the one hand, on one hand by communicators who argue for ideas that they want to share. That's the argumentative bit of reasoning. From the point of view of the whole audience, uh, the, the nice things about arguments presented by, by others is you can evaluate them. The audience is in an evaluative position. And so one prediction, for instance, so that, that's in a, in a nutshell the basic theory uh, we're presenting, the argumentative theory, is that reasoning uh, is a mean to overcome the limits of trust in human communication uh, uh, by giving reason for others to believe what we say uh, if we're on the communicator side or by uh, evaluating the reason others give us in order to be convinced on good grounds and not otherwise. So uh, the formation of the belief in within the communicator is not produced by reason, but the propagation of that belief to other people, uh, hopefully successfully, is that's the function served by reasoning, is figuring out how filtered, to transfer your belief to other people? Yes, it's filtered by reason. So the, the, the way our acceptance of 
ideas and information from others uh, is filtered by, by, by reasoning. So again, from the point of view of audience, we could have called it the evaluative theory of reasoning. From the point of view of, of a communicator, it's the argumentative theory of reasoning. So, so within the social context, where the social process of producing uh, of reason and filtering of reason, evaluating reason in, in, in a relatively objective way. So one prediction, one very actually surprising prediction of the argumentative theory, empirical prediction that can be experimentally tested, is that this my side bias, this confirmation bias, is going to be found quite systematically in the production of argument, but not in the evaluation. People are going to be much more objective when they evaluate arguments than when they produce them. And this, aren't there many oh. cases of, of my side bias demonstrated in the way people evaluate arguments, that people are are more likely to reject arguments, e even the, the exactly the same structure of argument, if it supports a, a position that they hold, they'll accept it. And if they, if it supports a position they don't hold, then they'll, you know, won't accept it, basically. So, so that, that's uh, indeed what would have been the common wisdom a few years ago. Uh, and it's, it really seemed to be the case. Uh, uh, but if you look more closely, uh, uh, that isn't so. So it depends in which kind of situation you find yourself. If you are in a situation or in a conversation, where I have some new ideas that you're willing to pay attention to, you think it may be interesting, but you're not willing to believe them on trust, then you will evaluate objectively. Uh, 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 and if I argue well, you will be convinced that otherwise not. If we're in a debate, like a political debate, or a moral debate, where we start from quite uh, antagonistic views that we strongly hold, uh, and we don't have kind of shared goal of, you know, indeed finding the best solution to a problem, or, or, or finding what's the true, uh, the best theory on a certain issue. In that case, indeed, argumentation tends to provide polarization. Because in that situation, you're not, the, the audience is not in a situation where the, the problem is, is there some useful information or ideas that uh, I could benefit from? Uh, the, the, the position, the attitude is, how can I fight against the, the views? from the other side. So indeed, in that kind of situation, it's polarized on both sides. It's uh, my side bias, both in evaluation and in production. But I'm talking about what I think is a basic situation which drives the evolution of, of, of reasoning and argumentation, where, where there's, a, in fact, a joint interest uh, of the communicator and the audience uh, in, in, in converging on an understanding of good ideas. Uh, um, and what the a person who argues and reason does is say, okay, you're not going to believe me just uh, on, on the basis of my authority, not just on trust, but I'll show you that in your own thinking, if you, you know, look at my arguments and so on, you'll find that they are good and you'll accept them. So, of course, there's a lot of bad arg arguing and, and sometimes devious arg argumentation like sophistry and so on. Uh, the process can be misused, but it does basically allow the transmission of a lot of information uh, uh, that wouldn't be accepted otherwise. And one time, there's a lot of, so now since we've developed this idea, first we have revised and reconsidered, revisited a lot of past evidence and shown uh, that, that, that the, uh, to the extent that the difference between uh, uh, objectivity in production and evaluation of argument has been studied at all, there's plenty of evidence already there showing that people are much better at evaluating than they are producing. And now this uh, uh, theory we've developed is creating new research Aiming, aimed at testing that directly and indeed finding pretty good confirming evidence. Mm -hmm. But to give just a very simple, uh, the, the type of finding which is quite decisive, if you take logical problems, I mentioned before the ways and selection task, which is a logical task, simple one, but when only 10% of people normally succeed. Uh, if instead of giving it to one individual or to individuals separately, you give it to groups of three or four people and ask them to solve it together, well, then what you get is about, uh, uh, it's an experiment which were first initiated by Moshman and Guile and uh, have been replicated many times since. What you find is that about 80% of the group succeed, when only 10% of individuals do succeed. What happens is that people come with different views, 
often none of them has the right solution, but each individual presents his views or her views, uh, which are being uh, evaluated more objectively by the others who reject the views which are not really uh, sound, not really consistent, and so on. So all the bad views get uh, sifted out, and people progressively converge in conversation, in discussion, on the right solution. That's a situation where each group is trying to say, they have a common interest in finding the right solution, and they do very well. But this kind of experimental result converges with what's been found, for instance, in, in teaching, in pedagogy, when you ask pupils, students, uh, um, to resolve a problem in, in science, for instance, on their own, to try to understand, develop the ideas on their own. They do, they learn better, they come to the right solution on their own better than if they are just told the, the solution to a, a science problem, say, by the teacher. Uh, in, in political interaction, if you, if you, you have, you know, what's now called the, the deliberative democracy, if you get a group of people and give them the task of solving a shared problem together, they may approach it from very different views, but if they have to interact, and listen to each other's argument, again, uh, they come with very biased argument, but, but they don't accept the, the, the biased argument of others. So progressively, provided that they have this common goal, they converge uh, on, on, on possibly not the best, but on a good solution. And, and this, and yes, sir. Dan, uh, where is the selection effect that you're positing operating? Is it, is, is, does the argumentative or, or um, evaluative theory of reasoning um, uh, or, or does this phenomenon persist because it's useful to the individual to convince other people in his tribe? Or does it persist because it's good for the group for, uh, for people to be um, epistemically vigilant, but also um, good at arguing? I think it's, it's very much a matter of individual selection. The benefit is from each one individually. It's, the benefit is for the communicator who has an interest in, in influencing and convincing others, but has to pay the price of producing good arguments for that. And, and, and the benefit is for the individual recipient who, who has an interest in getting uh, good ideas, some informa information, uh, and can use evaluation when she's presented with arguments. Uh, from, a group, from a group point of view, uh, it's uh, the, the issue is, is it's not clear that there's a group interest uh, in, in, in that first because uh, if you go for if you assume that the transmission of information uh, in, in a group uh, is has to do with group selection has to do with uh, the benefits of the group in general then trust should be uh, dominant there, there shouldn't be the problem that I've mentioned in terms of uh, the limits of trust. There should be no need for epistemic vigilance or, or, much, or much lesser need. The very need for reasoning, the very need for argument, uh, speak to the limits of our mutual trust. In, in, you know, if you, to, to go to the extreme, if you think of a society of insects like bees uh, uh, who are transmitting information to one another, they don't need to argue. They trust each other completely, but they are, you know, biologically uh, completely aligned. They are clones or near clones, and that their interests are, are, are identical. So, so, so uh, no, it's not, it's not uh, uh, the argumentative theory is a theory uh, about the evolution of an individual advantage, which in itself doesn't say anything about the existence or non-existence of group selection. I mean, if, if you, you know, a number of our colleagues uh, think that group selection has been quite crucial in the evolution of humans, but they typically argue for a multi-level selection. Nobody believes it's only group selection. So the point about the, the argument theory is a theory about the process at the level of individual selection. Uh, and another thing is to say, I mean, I've been, you know, uh, sp speaking about the, the positive effect that uh, a group uh, discussion may have. They have a positive effect only when people have a common goal uh, uh, of reaching a good decision or finding out uh, uh, what the truth is. Otherwise, as we mentioned before, you can get argumentation uh, causing uh, polarization, people coming with divergent views and ending even with more divergent views, being right. even more opposed to one another. And again, there's a lot of social psychology evidence to that effect. So no, it's not that reasoning is good for the group. Sometimes it's good for some groups who have a common goal, not for other groups in other kind of condition. What it's systematically good for 
uh, is the individual in the way they try to benefit from communication from others and in the way they try to use their communication to benefit from the relationship with other people. Okay. Can we go back briefly to the epistemic vigilance concept? Yeah. Because So the, the idea is that we, we evolved the capacity to reason so that we could get through other people's epistemically vigilant defenses. Um, but... So a lot of the listeners of this podcast are in the skeptic movement or skeptic community. And mm -hmm. one of the big frustrations of skeptics is that people seem to just very easily believe things that they read on random websites of the internet or that they're told by people with no credentials whatsoever. And so skeptics are, are quite used to, um, you know, bemoaning that people are not epistemically vigilant. And I'm wondering if there's a tension there with, with this idea that people, you know, automatically check things that they hear um, against their uh, current beliefs, because it, it doesn't seem to match the behavior that I'm pointing at. I'm a skeptic too, and I'd be more to the fact that people are not <coughs> epistemically vigilant enough. Uh, uh, but typically, these are issues of you know opinions about uh, 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 you know extraterrestrial being an unidentified flying object, uh, 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 theories about the assassination of Kennedy, uh, and so on and so on. So a number of issues which can uh, be very entertaining and and feed conversation endlessly. Uh, but the same people who are gullible uh, on, on such issues, uh, if you try, maybe just as vigilant as the next person, if you, the child uh, tries to pretend that uh, she has done her homework when she hasn't, or if a, a traveling salesman tries to sell it. So it, it, the, the, the social benefits uh, of all, all these uh, uh, public beliefs. Uh, I think uh, which have little practical consequences at the individual level. They may have very bad consequences at the social level. If you think say, of global warming, for instance, mm -hmm. the denial of it is going to cost us all. Uh, but in, in terms of individual choices, they don't drive people to be particularly vigilant. Uh, they, they find a greater reward and benefit in holding what they think is a daring position, uh, showing that uh, you know they, they don't fall for unanimous ideas or for the authority of a scientist or whatever, whatever. But, but that's, uh, and that's important and highly regrettable and, and so on, but it doesn't directly uh, provide us evidence against the view that it's a basic aspect of human interaction that we are uh, vigilant, that we do not accept everything, obviously. We, I mean, even people who are highly gullible on some issues are not that gullible in their daily life. People, you know, total gullibility is, is a pathetic pathology that is very rarely found. And would you say that the argumentative theory uh, is in tension with Kahneman Tversky's work, um, as explained, for example, in Thinking Fast and Slow, in, in which uh, our system one, our intuitive uh, thinking system has all of these, it uses all of these sort of quick and dirty heuristics that sometimes systematically go wrong in certain contexts. And our system two, our like slow, careful, deliberate uh, reasoning system um, can, if we engage it, can help us notice and, um, and correct those biases. Is that uh, compatible with the argumentative theory of reason? Well, you, you know, we had a conversation with Danny Kahneman after his book had come out, Hugo and I, and he came to a point to which most of the people who have this kind of dual process view that himself has been defending so well, uh, come to the conclusion that in fact the, you know, the so-called reasoning side, the, the system two type of thinking and so on, the, the, the slow thinking is also prone to mistake. And, and that the fast thinking, uh, in fact, does very well in lots of cases. So, so the initial view uh, of about 15 to 20 years ago of dual system theory, according to which you had system one heuristics, 
quick and dirty, as you, as you said, or fast and frugal, as Gigerent so would have called them. Uh, 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 it's, it's, it's cheap and it works, but it makes lots of mistakes. But then this can be improved and or corrected by system two slow thinking. That view uh, has lot, lost a lot of steam. And I think it's wrong. That's, that doesn't, uh, uh, it's, it's wrong at the individual level. So if you think of the achievement of science, of course it involves a lot of reasoning. But science is a collective activity. It's, 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 it's involved a lot of argumentation, counter-argumentation, trying to persuade others, paying attention to the others, because if they're right and you're wrong, you better change views rapidly and so on. So, so you'd have to ask, you'd have to ask Kenman, I'm not sure he agrees with our view, uh, but uh, I think there's some incompatibility with the way, uh, indeed, he presented the, the, the view in, in thinking fast and slow, and in the way uh, these dual system theories have been developed. And another more technical issue that uh, this is not the right place to discuss, yes, there are differences. Uh, but I mean, there's been a lot of, let, let me put that in a different perspective. There's been a lot of work on reasoning done by very bright people in the past 50 years or so, uh, Kahneman being one of the brightest, obviously. Uh, uh, and on the one hand, you know, it's impressive how much has been done by, and how bright the people who have been doing it were. On the other hand, if you compare it to what's been happening in all the domains of cognitive science, what's been happening in our understanding of vision, in the psychology of perception, what's been happening in developmental psychology, where understanding of the babies has changed, you know, quite radically. So you, you can look at so many different fields of psychology, where we find ourselves in a radically different perspective and knowing and understanding much more than we did before. And you look at the psychology of reasoning with all these white people, and, and the results are meager to, to be kind. Uh, people haven't even converged on, 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 on any kind of theory. It's, it's been a field in a state of crisis from the beginning, with just people who, holding opposite views and nobody ever coming to, you never got an agreement, oh, now we've moved forward, that's the new basis from which we start. So, so there, there is a real problem with the psychology of reasoning, not with, a, not with individuals, they're very, very bright, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, with the very way the, the field has been approached, with the very uh, pre, uh, presuppositions in, in which reasoning has been approached. So I'm not going to I'm not saying that the argument to theory uh, by itself will provide a new basis uh, and now we can indeed make a huge and, uh, and create a discovery. Uh, but, but what I do believe is, in a way, uh, it's been psychology of reasoning has spent a lot of time going up and down many blind alleys when so much of the rest of psychology was just making great strides forwards uh, uh, in, in a you know, relatively straight manner. Mm. And that has to change. Okay, uh, setting that aside for a moment, I, I had a few other pieces that I, I wanted mm. to connect to the yeah, argumentative sure. theory. Um, so to some extent, uh, the argumentative theory seems quite consistent with, with observations, both anecdotally and, you know, experimental observations um, that are hard to explain under other prevailing models. Like, uh, for example, the fact that, that people have this tendency to search for for more justifications for things they already believe that's like mm -hmm. not not very explicable under the idea that reasoning is for helping you arrive at the truth you know if you've already decided what what you believe then why would you need to find more reasons um but then there are other observations that are are harder for me to uh, reconcile with the argumentative theory like the fact that there is this phenomenon which is not universal by any means but is you know present in at least some people sometimes which is cognitive reflection or reflect reflectiveness so mm -hmm. uh some people at least sometimes can uh notice when their system one uh intuitive answer um often to logic puzzles uh this is how it's demonstrated in the in the studies people are given a logic puzzle that has an intuitive uh answer that will occur to you immediately and then some people are able to say wait no let me let me sort of 
think about that more carefully and then they'll notice their intuitive answer was wrong. Um, and that doesn't seem like the kind of thing. So clearly we, we to some extent evolved this capacity and it doesn't seem like the kind of reasoning that would help you win arguments exactly. So, so the, the, uh, the, you know, the 10% of people in our societies who indeed uh, are presented with one of these logical puzzles, which trigger mistaken intuition, uh, reflect and right, uh, right. correct it. They, they, you know, okay, so they, 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 they've been trained to do so. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a social game. Uh, um, Is it just training? Just, just, just as we've been trained in school uh, uh, to abstract away from a lot of contextual uh, info, information, the, 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 the ability to decontextualize a problem from all the background information and belief you have, have is, a, is a skill. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a hard-won skill, uh, and a lot of schooling is about acquiring the skill. The use of the skill is there for a certain type of purpose. In a lot of cases, uh, it's not a particularly useful uh, a skill. Uh, so, so I wouldn't make too much of that. I don't think that this reveals uh, any deep aspect of human psychology. So yes, I, I think the, the ability to, to uh, uh, overcome on your own uh, uh, the, the pull of the initial hunch uh, um, is more or less developed across individuals. Some people are, be are better at it than others. And we live in a kind of culture uh, where science has developed, mathematics, logic, puzzles, and so on, where, where, where there is a strong pressure to acquire the, the, the ability to do that. And even so, uh, uh, what, you, know, you still only have a minority of people who are good at it. Even if you, do, uh, uh, if, if you do many of these tests with science students, even mathematical students, econ economists, and so on, they fall prey to many uh, of, of these uh, intuitive biases, unless precisely they've already been taught about, they recognize the, the trap, because it, you know, it's, we, we play with traps from the beginning. I say, I don't mean it's a game in general, I'm not saying there are no social use, I mean it's indeed good to be able to do that, but it, that is still very much part of a social practice. I see. I see no reason to believe that it's this kind of evidence that you correctly point at uh, uh, reveals a deep feature of human psychology as opposed to a deep feature of our social interaction and hence in a certain kind of cultural context. I see. So uh, we have maybe a couple minutes left in, in this yeah. part of the podcast. Um, and this might be a good place to ask you about implications uh, of the argumentative theory. Assuming it's basically true, what does that imply about, um, I mean, anything? Uh, the, the, the attempts, um, like my organization is attempting to uh, train people to think in a less biased way or to make better decisions. Um, does uh, is the fact that you know roughly ten percent of people um, can avoid the pull of this kind of reasoning uh, or uh, avoid the pull of of uh, intuitive bias? Is is that evidence that uh, training people is possible but very difficult? Um, or, or what does the argumentative theory have to say? About so, that? so the, the thing that that sample, you can train ten percent of people or more to to avoid the, you know the pull of intuitive bias may not be so much a way to go. It's a bit like you know remember all the experiments in, on memory. So you can train people to remember uh, a long list of syllables or, or, or you know and, and with methods that go back to antiquity. But then it doesn't it doesn't generalize to to memory in general. Same thing if you if you train people to be much better at these logical puzzles, does it mean that they reason better in their daily life? I doubt it very much. So. So if I, uh, and the evidence at least is, is not there. Uh, but there so, is so, individual so, difference in, in rationality in everyday life, right? So Stanovich, for example, oh, yes, has... Of course, of, of course there is. Of, of, of course there is. But, but you but, think but, that's uh, innate and not trained? No, no, it, I'm not saying that training plays no role. I'm, I'm trying to say, trying to, you know, t taking a number of typical experimental design or puzzles and so on and getting people to uh, see that their, their, their initial hunch was mistaken and mm -hmm. to overcome it may not generalize the way we would like it to. 
to, to the way they use reason uh, in, in daily life. And there's another, but to go on a positive note, uh, uh, the suggestion of the argumentative theory would be um, the best way when it's possible to solve a problem, to move forward in our knowledge and so on, is to gather a group of people uh, who have a common interest indeed in finding the best possible solution, in finding out uh, about facts or about theory, uh, um, and, and getting them to come up with, to argue among themselves, to discuss. That, that, that's, uh, you know, it's in, in political terms, it's a very democratic way to, to proceed, and, and a kind of fairly basic, I mean, it's not, you don't delegate. Uh, to a few elected people whom you're going to re-elect or not re-elect uh, five years from now. You, you basically, it's got to be an everyday kind of democratic interaction to be effective. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in science, in a way, that's what scientific institutions do. They, they, they create precisely uh, uh, the, the kind of situation where this conversation of people are both uh, competing because they come with different views but have a, a shared interest in, in, in getting better knowledge uh, uh, proves itself very successful. So, so it's more, I would insist less on individual training and more on creating uh, uh, opportunities and institutions for the transmission of ideas, knowledge, and, and for the making of decisions that tap on our collective resources in this way. Great. That's very helpful. Thank you. I think that is a, that's a good note on which to close this part of the conversation, and uh, we will move on now to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Every episode, we invite our guest to introduce the rationally speaking pick of the episode. That's a book or website or whatever else tickles his or her rational fancy. Dan, what's your pick for this episode? So it's, it's both a website and, and a book. Uh, so the website is called cognitionandculture.net. It's being it's in the process of being improved, but it's a, a website that many friends and myself run when we uh, mix uh, information, discussion, debates uh, about issues which are the uh, interface between our understanding of the mind and our understanding of society, and so that may be of interest to uh, listener to your podcast. But more specifically, we just had a, a book club with a very vivid discussion on what I think is one of the very best book I've read in a long time. So the book is by uh, an English uh, philosopher and psychologist, Tom Scott Phillips, and it's called Speaking Our Minds, and it's about the evolution of language, a favorite mm -hmm. topic of many, but a topic which I find is being mishandled most of the time. And this is really a novel and exciting approach. So, so the book is Speaking Our Minds, it's by Tom Scott Phillips, and it's just been published by Paul Gray. So I would recommend both the website cognitionandculture.net and Tom Scott Phillips' book. Great. We will link to both the uh, website and the book on the podcast website when this episode goes up. Uh, and I also encourage people to um, check out the original 2011 paper uh, by Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier, Why Do Humans Reason?, um, which you can find at, for example, Hugo's website with uh, a lot of accompanying discussion. Um, and also keep your eyes peeled for a book by Dan and Hugo um, called Is It the Enigma of Human Reason? Yes. Great. Uh, Dan, thank you so much again for uh, joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And goodbye. Goodbye. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Yeah. And uh, I encourage our listeners also to uh, check out the full transcripts, which we post for every episode uh, at rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. 
For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>